Good evening. Live from Minneapolis, uh, this is Bright Lights. I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. Uh, we are your weekly excursion into uh, the world of achievement, where we bring you guests uh, who are our bright lights to share with you uh, their road or journey to success. And also uh, share uh, a little bit light on our audience. And basically, we are here, and we know a lot of, especially our young people, they hear so many negative things about uh, all the obstacles in life and all the uh, issues they have to overcome and how unfair everything is. And, you know, I'm just up front. Uh, I think uh, you can be anything you want to be uh, with a little hard work, discipline, success, education, and those type of things. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my favorite sayings is that uh, the only place where uh, success comes before work is in the dictionary. And so I'm here to believe, here to let you know uh, whatever you want to be, we believe you can be it. Don't listen to a lot of the naysayers and uh, who paint a lot of uh, negativity around you and your life and your future. Uh, so if you have any doubt about that, listen and let us know. Uh, one of the things that I've been talking about uh, is getting to the root problems of a lot of issues that's been facing our communities, our cities, our states, our country, and especially in disadvantaged communities. And I have been upfront from the beginning that a lot of these issues that's plaguing these communities, uh, the short in the short term, we can only hope to contain them. Uh, in the long term, what we have to do is get to the bottom of these issues. And I've been basically spelling out what I think uh, it would take to get to the bottom of these issues. And as always, I say to people, if you got a better idea, let's go with yours. But my idea is, uh, first and foremost, uh, education, uh, business and economic development, and basically the way I put it, put money in people's pockets, uh, and uh, wealth creation, uh, where you have generational wealth, where uh, you build up a net worth uh, personal net worth that you can pass on to your children and you set an example for them and kind of break the cycle of poverty and violence and things like that. Uh, so education, economic development, also family. Uh, we have to rebuild the families. I don't see any other way uh, as far as long-term solutions. If anyone got better ideas, once again, like I say, let's go with that. And then again, I'm just a strong believer in the importance of faith and I was talking to a young man today, look, uh, when I say faith, it's just the discipline uh, that it brings and the answers that it provides to a lot of situations uh, that you come across in life. And really he was telling me about his life and it was very interesting. And uh, I suggested that uh, uh, he start go going back to church and things like that. So those are the type of things that I've been uh, advocating and along that line, uh, and it's dealing with uh, wealth creation, one of the better ways to help uh, increase net worth and generation, provide generation wealth is uh, through real estate purchasing and real estate development and things like that. And towards that end, uh, I'm happy to have with us our guest tonight who, who's uh, made a career in real estate and other things related to that. Uh, Mr. Andy Noble. Uh, good evening, Andy. How you doing, Lacey? Good to be with you. Yeah, good to have you here. Uh, and uh, I think we met a couple of times uh, at different events, networking events, and so good to have you here. And uh, I know some of the things that you've been trying to do, and we'll talk about that uh, shortly. <laughs> but before we get started, Andy, well, first of all, how are you doing and how's life been treating you? Well, it's been uh, it's been a wonderful time. Um, honored to be on your show, uh, and just love what you're talking about, uh, Lacey, and with the people that you're talking about it with. Um, we need more of you. We need more people in uh, the private sector and the public sector working together for solutions and 
Um, you know, we, we do a little bit of that in, a, in my current uh, role uh, with Keller Williams as a team leader and a CEO of, of Market Center. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just uh, really blessed to have the opportunities that are coming about right now in, in uh, the real estate industry here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and, and uh, they're having a record year right now. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little while again. Uh, before we go there, just tell us a little bit about yourself and it was places like where you're from, a little bit about your family background, childhood influences, uh, those type of things that would be a predictor, let's say, uh, where you are today. So just give us a little uh, biographical uh, sketch of sure. Andy Noble. Well, uh, Lacey, I'm originally from Indianapolis, Indiana. I moved up to the Twin Cities 13 years ago. And I've uh, been in the uh, the frozen cold up here. I know you come down for, or come up from uh, Mississippi in the south, so you were used to even more warmer weather than I am. Um, I always say I, I moved to Minnesota for the weather. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Indianapolis. I was born and raised. Went to Indiana University, uh, and uh, you know spent spent most of my adult years in Indianapolis. Built up a group of companies uh, with about thirty eight employees. Uh, kind of uh, managing and owning uh, th several thousand units of, of multifamily and single family homes. Um, and really spent about 25 years in that business uh, doing a lot of different real estate related things. Um, and I, uh, you know, I just have really, uh, I took a little bit of a hiatus out of real estate in 07, 08, when the market really turned down and the banks almost failed and uh, left the industry for about seven years after 25 years into it. And I'm, I'm four years back into it now and just loving it with, uh, with my current company. So I'm kind of taking a culmina culmination of about 25 years of work in the uh, real estate property management, development, uh, financing, construction, uh, brokerage business, all those different facets and really putting that uh, to use now in my current role where I manage and oversee about 200 real estate agents and a team of staff of about 10 people. So it's been a lot of fun. We've been very busy. Well, sounds like it. I have to interject something personally about Indianapolis. I have quite a few fond memories of Indianapolis. Well, first of all, uh, my fraternity Cap FSI was founded at Indiana University in 1911. And that's one of the, my connections there. Uh, secondly, uh, we call it Naptown, uh, Cir <laughs> Circle City, I think it is, and uh, one of the most memorable uh, nights of my life. Uh, they have the Circle, Circle City Classic down there where they bring in the two HBCUs football team, and I attended one. And this was a long time ago, and I forgot the stadium that was there, but I just remember the moon was out, and they had these long stairs leading up to the stadium, and uh, if you're familiar with it, it's, it turns into like a HBCU uh, love fest uh, that oh, weekend. Yeah. And so I, I really enjoyed that. So I have a, have a lot of fond memories of Indianapolis. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about your education. And I know you attended Indiana University, got a few degrees there. So why don't you tell us about that and, and uh, what made you choose uh, those type of majors uh, of all the various degrees that you have? Well, uh, you know, obviously I, I started out at Indiana University for my undergraduate, and actually I was a member of a fraternity there, great, great Greek system. And uh, you're, I know your fraternity, and that's a wonderful, wonderful chapter there. Um, so, yeah, I, I studied political science, thought I wanted to go into the business uh, program at, at the, the Kelly School of Business, which is one of the top business schools. And I, I really was heading down that path and then kind of made an abrupt shift into political science. Uh, and, and really realized at that age, Lacey, I, I, like you, had kind of a propensity and an interest in uh, not necessarily public office at the time serving, but in, in you know, uh, uh, not only our political process, but also, you know, how important it is if you're going to be successful in business to be very engaged in our political system because everything coming out of our political system and out of Washington and our state capitals is greatly impacting our lives personally and professionally. And so, you know, I had a great mentor, Dr. Dick Fredland, who was uh, uh, at Indiana uh, at the time was my advisor and really was just an incredible individual. Um, and he, uh, he was actually an expert in written, written a number of books in African studies 
uh, on, on several countries um, in uh, Africa and had gone over there and spent quite a bit of time. And so anyway, he was definitely an early influence on me and really got into more of a liberal arts education path, doing a lot of writing, uh, a lot of debating and discussion. And I, I wouldn't trade it uh, looking back on it for anything. I mean, as much as I think getting a business degree would have been a great thing, uh, I really did a pivot early on and said, you know, my, my parents are both very educated people. My dad is a PhD in English and my mom's a master's in library science. They're both accomplished book authors. So I kind of came from that background and I really learned to value writing, speaking, and, um, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the skills that we don't put enough value on and we're not teaching young people enough today, you know, that, that I think even are valuable in business and, and I think are, you know, very essential to leadership, don't you think? Yes, I agree with you. Uh, so you mentioned Africa, and I, I know in doing a little research on you that you have extensive experience, business experience in other countries. Why don't you just give us a quick list of all these different countries that you have uh, <laughs> done business in and went over and improved these countries? And uh, <laughs> Well, that would be very generous if I could say that I've uh, improved any countries in the world, but... But I, uh, I certainly had uh, some wonderful experiences in Asia and a uh, little in the Middle East. It was just uh, you know, probably more in Asia than anything. I, I, I've been over to uh, Asia quite a bit, almost, you know, geez, I don't know, 30 times. I mean, uh, I used to go over there pretty regularly. And I kind of stumbled into that opportunity. Um, a good friend of mine took me over there on the first trip, who is actually coming out with an amazing company out of Indianapolis right now called Vocare. And uh, Steve was, is, a, is a good friend of mine and was an engineer making products. And we were trying to create some products for the apartment industry, which is what I was in, multifamily. And uh, we went over there and got way down the road on a few things. And it was really fun and exciting. And, and there were just learned a lot of stuff in the process of um, manufacturing and shipping back to the United States. So that's kind of how we got involved over there and really made some great connections and contacts and started um, really uh, moving in a path of another uh, group of, of small companies that were going to be making products in uh, Asia, particularly in China, and, um, and then shipping that back here. And really the one thing that we kind of stepped on, um, uh, you know, that, 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 regulation the regulational uh environment you know is shipping mm -hmm. products back into the u.s with certain chemicals uh embedded in them plastics and such you know added tariffs to the products which uh really ate up a lot of our margins that were pretty incredible what we were able to to gap you know in making these in in china and shipping them back you know such as vinyl replacement windows or uh, carpeting, you know, which we were really kind of honing in on several lines for these types of products. And, and it was just, it was a fascinating experience to go through and also, um, you know, to get involved in. Um, but it also taught me a lot about how regulatory and environment trade is, you know, firsthand. Mm -hmm. I mean, we learned firsthand. We learned about just-in-time manufacturing and how to make products in Asia, ship them to Mexico for assembly, and then truck them up here every three days. And what's considered just-in-time manufacturing. So we were looking at models like that. And uh, it was just a fascinating experience. Uh, and, you know, you got to remember that was probably, that was the early 2000s we were doing that, uh, back in the early 2000s. So uh, a lot of great trips over there, a lot of great connections. Um, you know, it, it's, it's it just the, those travels also kind of led to some new opportunities that I have started here within my market center for my Keller Williams agency with the 200 agents we have called the Multicultural Agents Council. And um, I really, a lot of my experiences overseas doing business as an American in those countries was my inspiration for starting that group here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, which we can talk about a little bit later here. But I, I think that was very much my experiences in traveling overseas was a lot of the inspiration for how I created that organization and the success that we've had with it. Okay, so Andy, you mentioned uh, doing some manufacturing and things over in China and shipping the products back here and how when you start dealing with the regulation and tariffs and things, it cuts into your profit. Where I'm going with this, Andy, uh, and I know you probably run the numbers, 
But there are a lot of communities over here where we could put up factories and things like that and and and, and have a I'm assuming a competitive wage of what's when you add on the tariffs and things like that, uh be competitive in the labor market with China. Am I uh misunderstanding uh overestimating uh what it would take to move some of those jobs back in some to some of the disadvantaged communities here and pay them a decent wage and would it be still competitive with well, uh, manufacturing in China? And I think you understand the gist of what I'm asking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great question, Lacey. And the answer is absolutely. I, I mean, you got to remember, this is probably 18, 20 years ago. Right. Um, th there, was, there was really a fundamental thing that was the attraction to making products in China that was happening back then. And that was the Chinese communist government was offering a tax credit to manufacturers in China, many of which are actually owned by the Communist Party of China, the government. Yeah, I know uh, that. Mm -hmm. and, and they owned about 2,000 to 3,000 manufacturers that are to this day still, some of them are state-owned enterprises. And what they did was to be competitive and to outflank American companies or American communities from being able to make these products, they would literally provide them with a 12 to 14% tax credit over and above when they're so in other words when they're bidding they can make up 12 to 14 percent of their cost uh and just take it right off the top to be if they're competing with american companies or american communities to make these products and that was why we lost so much of our manufacturing to china in the particularly in the early 2000s and then they did away with that and i'm not sure what year in the early 2000s the Chinese government actually stopped doing that and it became a little more level playing field. But no, I totally would agree with you, Lacey. Today, the, the, there are still cost advantages or co uh, competitive advantages to making certain components or products in China or in Asia. Some of that's moved out of China now into countries, emerging countries like Vietnam, uh, Korea. Uh, you know, you're seeing Taiwan, you're seeing more of that happening. But no, I would agree with you. The, the playing field has gotten a lot more level. And I think when you add in all the added time that it takes to make and ship those products here, a lot of people or uh, companies are now looking at this going, you know, even if we're saving a little bit, we're not saving enough to make it worth the while to make this half world away and ship it on a boat to Long Beach that, from Shanghai right. that takes 26 days in a container ship. So. Right. You know, I think there, there definitely has been a lot of change in this, and I, I would agree with you. We, we need to be aggressive. And I think, honestly, I mean, as much as I, I hate to make things political, I think Donald Trump was doing some things that were very necessary for American business to stand up to the Chinese and say, we can be competitive. We can match your prices, too, without government intervention, which is not a free market economy. And that's mm -hmm. the whole reason the Chinese have been cheating is they're, they're basically... Uh, they're financing their businesses with government money, which is not a free market economy, and it's protectionism. And they're they're financing that gap to make sure they can beat us out and eliminate our jobs and eliminate our manufacturing. And it's had a devastating impact on the United States and many communities in this country. And we got to go back and fix this. And I think Trump was on a very, like him or not, he was on a good path to leveling that playing field. And I think the Chinese were scared about it. and They didn't like it. And so when you look at uh, the playing field now, nowadays, uh, do you foresee a future where American businesses will start looking within this country for some of those manufacturing capabilities and giving some of these, let's say, disadvantaged communities an opportunity to compete with China uh, in the production of, of a lot of these goods and, and equipments. Oh, there's no doubt. And I know quite a few people that are directly tied into this effort here in the United States on an economic development level, which is one of your pillars that you you know strongly believe in is business and economic opportunity, business development opportunity. Um, no, there's no doubt. And I, again, I think, you know, Trump may not have been the first or only person to have pushed this agenda, but I think he really was pushing for a reemergence of manufacturing. Look, there's a lot of people in this country that have given up on manufacturing. They don't think mm -hmm. manufacturing is even a worthy pursuit any different than they think our oil and gas industry is, is worthwhile. And we got to stop and realize that you can't switch these things on and off 
generationally. There, there's generations of investment and people involved in this. And if you're going to transition to whole new economies to replace other elements of those of the old economy, like manufacturing or oil and gas, you cannot do this in one administration or over a couple of years. And we've seen the effects that's had on the Keystone Pipeline and how many jobs have been lost from that, as well as uh, right now, the, the Line 3 in northern Minnesota is being challenged by environmentalists, even after it's been approved. So, right, right. you know, we, we've got to be careful how we do this stuff. There's real implications to uh, not only generations of people, but also many jobs, many well, you know, people's lives and well-beings. Uh, and I saw this, you know, with, with the situation happening in China and in Asia in the early 2000s was we were massively shutting down factories. I, people don't realize it. We had literally tens of thousands of shuttered industrial facilities and manufacturing facilities in this country today still that have gone, you know, that are available to do something or repurpose in many communities. And the question is, what do you do with those? What is the opportunity or the highest and best opportunity? Right? Yeah. And, and one more uh, subject on China, and then we will segue into your current uh, profession, uh, what you're doing in real estate. I have been talking to American business people who've been traveling to China, and I understand that it's one of the most racist countries there is. In fact, I have uh, personal stories of black businessmen being left out of, saying they can't come into meetings. Is that have do you know anything about that and is that true or is that just some type of rumor that i'm hearing here well you know i i think we all could could definitely come together and agree that over generalizations about entire populations of people is probably not a good thing to say i mean are all chinese or are, are all asians racist of course not not at all of course yeah yep, um yep. but i do think what you're touching on, and I will say, um, you know, it, it's interesting from my lens and traveling that much overseas, how much I see people claiming this is a racist country and not really, you know, the people that are claiming that, Lacey, have not traveled. They've not gone over to Asia 30 times or they haven't gone to the Middle East or they haven't gone to uh, other countries of the world. You know, many of them haven't traveled at all. If you really get down to it and ask them, as they haven't even traveled outside the U.S., so their only lens of comparison is what they see and they think or they're told is going on in this country. And I would say to your point, and I think it's a valid one, uh, we don't know if, if we think this is the most racist country in the world or that this is the only country that racism is being promulgated. Get on a plane and travel over around the world, and you might be surprised. Uh, how well received certain ethnicities in this country and throughout the world are addressed in other countries. And I'll just leave it at that. But yes, yeah. the answer is, I think that, you know, we're all looking at this lens and pointing fingers in our own country at how impure and racist this country is. And, and I'd like to see some of these people get on a plane and travel halfway across the world like I have as many times as I have. And you tell me what you think as far as is racism uh, existent, ex existent or happening in, in, in areas like Asia, the Middle East, Europe, uh, mm -hmm. Russia, you know, all these different countries. The, the truth is it is that yes. sometimes in a larger degree. Okay. And that's a good point. Cause we do tend to overgeneralize on that. And I have done a, a little traveling myself and, uh, people tend to welcome me with open arms. And I just wanted to get that uh, clarification out there. So let's talk a little about your real estate. Uh, well, currently, as I understand it, homes are selling like hotcakes, so to speak. Uh, is that true? And how do you explain that? Well, uh, so. you know, again, the great, great thing about, uh, you know, having me on for a conversation around some of these topics is I'm pretty well traveled and have been around this industry for 31 years, the real estate industry. Um, I can tell you that I've been through three recessions and I, I, I wouldn't even put 0708 into the category of a recession. I'd call it a damn near collapse uh, of the financial system. I, that's probably more than a, more severe than a recession. Um, but I, uh, I will tell you in my 31 years, I've not seen the housing market this strong and this sustainable. We, we traditionally go through 
uh, seven-year cycles, and those are not absolute, but if you look back in history over the last 80 to 100 years, uh, the real estate economy uh, as, a, as a key component of our national economy has really ebbed and flowed, Lacey, on a seven-year cycle. Tradition, you know, and again, that could be one, one cycle, it's eight years, eight and a half, another it's six and a half, another it's seven, seven and a half. You know, they're generally averaged out to be about seven-year cycles. We're 12 years plus into the current cycle. And what that tells us is we're due for a correction. Um, we are definitely due overdue. Let's, let's use the word overdue for a correction in the housing market. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen. It's really bizarre because I'll give you a little insight. Uh, the 10-year treasury bonds, U.S. treasury bonds, are really the index for interest rates. So if you want to know where interest rates are heading for mortgages, follow the 10-year treasuries. That's, that's the bellwether benchmark for uh, interest rates, for mortgages, mortgage interest rates. Uh, not the not the um, uh, the Fed rate or anything like that. That has mm -hmm. nothing to do with mortgages. It's ten year treasuries. So mm -hmm. if you see ten year treasuries over a solid month or two going up, 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 you can just watch the interest rates slowly climbing up behind them. Uh, and if you see them going down, uh, same thing. If you see them trading laterally, uh, you know this is this is a this is a cost of debt to the the U.S. is putting out. And um, so they are the index for mortgage interest rates by the mortgage providers and the people that are lending money. And I think um, I think we're, we're a little bit baffled. I mean, my friends say that they think interest rates are going to go up probably a good just a point within the next 12 months. But, you know, now there was some stuff coming out on the news programs the other day saying that by the end of this year, we might actually see another slight dip in interest rate uh, interest rates. So. I don't know what's going on. I, this is a bizarre market and it's long overdue for a correction and I would plan on it and I would get ready for it because it's coming. It's just a matter of when. I mean, as the old saying goes, what goes up must come down, right? Right, right. So what currently is the interest rate on 10-year uh, federal bonds? Uh, darn and near zero. Oh, yeah. and, yeah, and less, less, than a, okay. less than a point. I, I haven't looked at the latest. Uh, okay. Quoted numbers, but yeah, it's it's very cheap. Just just like the lend the Fed's lending rate is basically right. zero, zero and has been yeah. believed to to potentially go negative if they keep stimulating the economy, where banks can actually borrow money at less than zero percent, which sounds bizarre. But uh, you know, financial institutions are making plenty of money right now. I mean, with the cost of of money coming out of the Fed mm -hmm. uh, and Treasuries, you know, this is the way I look at Treasuries, and this is the way I look at the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy, Lacey, issues lots of forms of debt. Okay, mm -hmm. you got ten-year, thirty-year treasuries, five-year notes, one-year notes. Um, when we know we have a problem, here's the quickest way to summarize this: When we know we have a problem, is when there's not buyers on the other side to buy those notes, right? And fund and fund our operations and our overspending. When we don't have Europeans and Chinese and Middle Easterners and all the other billionaires and millionaires and people, institutions that are buying that paper around the world, and they are, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, if we don't have buyers on the other end, two things happen. We have a crisis, and we also have to up the interest rates and the return that we pay people because it's a supply and demand market. So if, if the Fed issues treasury notes at an eighth of a point, and that's all they're paying out, Hey, great. As long as you got buyers all around the world that'll buy our treasuries at an eighth of a point return, you know, rate of return, we're in good shape, aren't we? But what happens yes. if this doesn't happen and they'd say we're not buying for any number of reasons? We don't like whoever's in office. We don't like their economic policies. We don't like what the U.S. is doing elsewhere. Uh, we're not going to pay that. Well, then those rates go up. Guns when those interest rates that have to be paid out in order to get people to buy our bonds goes up. The entire federal debt that we pay yep. in service and all of our expenditures go rampantly up. And we got a problem in this country, a huge yeah. economic problem. Yeah. So while we on the feds and monetary policies and things like that, uh, gas prices are going up. Uh, they tell us inflation is setting in. Is this a result of a lot of the currency that uh, putting in the circulation or absolutely and, and when do we see uh what do we what do we see this going I, I mean do we see inflation going up even higher 
well, I'm quite sure probably before it gets better. What is it going to take to bring down this inflation, in your opinion? Well, I yeah, and that's a good question. I don't know if it's a, if it's just one thing or one answer. I, mm-hmm. The answer to your question, though, is yes, uh, the amount of money being printed and circulated. I mean, let's just look at it and say, you don't have to be an economics expert. If you put a lot of dollar bills in theory or, or U.S. dollar uh, currency into the system, what, what is it doing? It's devaluing the cost kind of, or it's mm-hmm. devaluing the value of each of those bills. And we mm-hmm. are doing that at record rates right now, uh, particularly mm-hmm. under the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. And so we got to be careful with this. I mean, we've got a we've got a battle of ideologies here between the Biden administration and the Trump administration and the economics both believe in is the Biden administration believes government needs to stimulate the economy and to stimulate growth. So that's why you see the, the printing press is turned on full bore. And, you know, this is going to have uh, an impact on it's going to have an impact and, and some, you know, excuse my language, but it's going to have some hell to pay here in the, in the, the coming months and years uh, because this stuff just doesn't self-solve itself. Um, and we got to be careful with what we're doing with this. Um, I think that's why in our, in our federal, uh, using our federal reserve, you know, which is, is kind of a, you know, there are a lot of people that don't believe that our Federal Reserve either should be stimulating economic policy, which is really a culmination of all the banks and bankers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we're going to have to do something with respect to interest rates and or money circulation or, you know, the, the, the things that obviously everybody is kind of paying attention to and saying, well, somehow you're going to have to go back and fix this. And, so, you know, you, you can take money out of circulation, but you don't want to do that at this point in time right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, the you know, there's just a real difference of ideologies. And I'm a little worried when we have 30 to 40 key consumer uh, uh, measures of products and services that are right now getting hammered with inflation, oil and gas being one of them. Um, yeah, this is this is kind of scary stuff. And the last time we've seen this was the Carter administration in the 70s, many of which your listeners may have not lived through that period. But we you literally you remember it, Lacey, like yes. I do. You mm-hmm. go to a gas station and you're waiting two hours to fill up your tank. You know, yes. I mean, yeah, well, be from... go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no go ahead. I was going to yeah, say there. I think part of the concern there, too, uh, they're still spending. And they're still running up the debt, and they're still pumping more currency into the economy. And uh, but uh, you know, politicians figured out a long time ago most Americans either don't understand what's going on, or they're not. It's not a priority, so they will spend themselves and give people whatever they ask for to get reelected. That's just my opinion, and I'm concerned about my little grandson having to pay for this. Of course, we're not going to get into that now, but there's such thing as a money. Uh, modern money, monetary theory that says we don't have to worry about that. The government just print money and we don't have to ever have to pay it off. But that's a whole different subject. Uh, you mentioned uh, corrections in the housing industry. We talked about the 2008 housing bubble. Uh, I'm assuming these corrections, and I think you implied in your answers, are not going to be that serious. It's just your normal seven-year correction somewhere down the road where it's, it's late right now. Uh, so how do you see uh, it impacting your industry when this correction comes? What effect it's going to have on you and your uh, 100 real estate agents or whatever, whenever this correction comes? Well, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think we've we've kind of prognosticated about this. I mean, it's hard to tell if we see a market correction, which is really going to be gradual rather than, than abrupt. Mm-hmm. Um I think, I think that there could be some good things that could come out of it. I mean, the big problem we have right now, which is kind of a premise of a lot of the conversational pieces we're talking about here, is supply and demand economics. Right. And in the housing market, the problem we have right now is uh, we don't have enough supply to meet the demand. You know, there's a generational thing, and this is a, this is kind of my theory and belief is we're in a real unique generational shift where we've got baby boomers and millennials. And combined, that makes up just under 160 million Americans. Okay, mm-hmm. that's that's almost half of our U.S. population of what 330, 340 million people. Mm-hmm. The the millennials and the baby boomers. Baby boomers last year, uh, 
you know, their last year was 1964, right? So any, mm -hmm. any, and then of course, you know, when we go to millennials, that wasn't the next generation after. Uh, millennials, I think, went from 84 to 96, when they were born between 1984 and 1996. Um, in two years from now, Lacey, millennials will start turning 40 years old in 2022. 20, I think it's 2022. Um, so, that's going to be interesting. You know, the, when you think of 40 plus, year, you know, the 40 to 50 year olds, that's when people are starting to find their stride in their careers and earnings. They're having families or have already started families. They're definitely buying homes, maybe buying up on homes to newer, bigger homes. Um, so we're going to see this, you know, I mean, this is going to start to happen with literally 70, what is it, 75 million millennials in the United States. And then we have about 77, 78 million baby boomers. Baby boomers being the older generation that the last year born was 1964. Um, they're now looking, and, and I think this is a little bit of the political shift and dynamic we're seeing with housing movement, even out of Minnesota, is people are saying, you know what? I don't wanna live in a Northern state. I don't wanna live in a state that I don't agree with the politics. I'm moving South. And I was always gonna move South and retire in the South, you know, where it's warm and I got palm trees and such. But now with COVID, People are starting to rethink, and even their jobs are willing to uh, accommodate a shift in how they work. They don't have to be in Minnesota and work out of a back office or maybe what's now transitioned into a back office job, you know, not needing to rent office space and be in an office. So we're seeing a lot of stuff here that's happening that's going to really impact a lot of decisions of consumers on where they live, how much square feet they live in. Um, you know, are they trading up? Or are they trading down? They used to say baby boomers, the older generations are always always downsizing. We're interestingly in real estate, we're not actually seeing that often. We're seeing people that are baby boomers going into retirement or semi-retirement, and they're actually building bigger houses or buying bigger houses. And maybe they're buying it because it's in a different market where their dollars go further. You know, right, Minnesota right. is a very expensive, in my opinion, not not maybe as much as New York or California. But this, having lived elsewhere, this is not the most affordable housing market in the United States. We're about 30% higher than my hometown of Indianapolis when it comes to housing. Uh, and I would say we're about 25 to 30% more expensive than Florida, which is a very popular destination right now for a lot of Minnesotans who are leaving Minnesota. Right. So the answer may be obvious, but why would housing in the Twin Cities, let's say, be 30% higher than it is in Florida. I mean, is it the taxes? Is it the public policy? How, how do you explain that? Well, it could be a combination of any and all those things. Um, you know, some of the cost basis in housing or cost of living is deep, is rooted in history. So, you know, Minneapolis, I mean, I find this interesting too, looking at this through my lens, not being from Minneapolis, St. Paul is, you know, when I moved up here 13 years ago, I, I may or may not have shared this with you before, Lacey, but there was 33 Fortune 500 companies headquartered in the Twin Cities 13 years ago when I got yep. here in 08. Yep. Yeah. How many do you think we have today, 13 years I, later? I'd say we're down to about anywhere between 10 and 15. Yeah, it's about 15. Uh, and, and again, we didn't lose all those companies because they didn't like Minnesota or they right. thought everything was too expensive or regulatory. We lost some of them through natural attrition, like St. Mm -hmm. Jude Medical merged with Boston Scientific. Well, Boston Scientific didn't choose to headquarter here. They're already in Boston. So all the St. Jude Medical headquarters gets absorbed up into Boston Scientific, and you don't have a headquarters here anymore for a company like that. So we've seen that. But there is real implications happening in the Twin Cities right now with corporations. Not you know, We're losing that corporate base. And I think part of... You know, we, we talk about all the negative reasons that cost of living increases. There's also positive reasons why cost of living increases. For instance, when you had 33 companies headquartered here, you had a lot of high paying jobs and a lot of upper level management jobs. Well, so now you have a higher demand for housing, expensive housing, higher end housing because people can afford it. Uh, well, what does that do? That can drive up prices because you have more consumers with more dollars wanting to spend more than maybe they do 
in a city like Indianapolis or a city like Omaha where you don't have near those jobs and therefore that demand for that type of housing. So it can be positive and negative supply and demand issues that drive up the cost of living. But I think the Minneapolis St. Paul has had a higher cost of living for some time. And I do think some of the regulatory policies and things uh, do affect that. You know, there's no doubt. I mean, there, it does translate down to the uh, costs of goods and the costs of, of um, you know, of living here, you know, or existing here, you know, running a business here, retiring here. It's very expensive. I don't know any financial planners that would advise anybody with wealth over $3 million in net worth to retire here in the, in the state of Minnesota. It absolutely right. doesn't make financial sense to do that. I agree with that. So, uh, and we try to reach a national, perhaps even an international audience here, but I have to ask about the current building boom here, especially in downtown Minneapolis. And I'm assuming it's going, this is occurring in other cities across the country, but how do you explain all these, I mean, every parking lot is being taken up by a new building, a new set of residencies and things like that. What's going on, Andy? Tell us, us folks who drive through downtown Minneapolis and look like these apartment buildings are popping up everywhere, uh, these condos or whatever. What's what's going on there, Andy? Well, there's there's always a perceived optimism when we see construction cranes and high rises going up. But here's my caveat to that, I would say. Um, you have to understand in development, real estate development, projects are planned two, three, four years ahead of when they actually start turning dirt and building up. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, a high rise downtown can take eight, uh, 12 to 18 months to construct, you know, I mean, just to, to build out and, and mm -hmm. build up. Um, so you got to remember some of these projects that you're seeing downtown were envisioned and planned and capitalized three to four or five years ago. Man, I would say right, more right. like three to four years ago. Right. Well, okay. we were in a much different place three to four years ago, weren't we? Yes. The bank, yes. the bankers probably had a lot different optimistic view of downtown Minneapolis. Uh, the developers certainly did. And even the market from a supply and demand standpoint, and the, the consumers as far as, you know, I mean, we, we've been building so many uh, luxurious condos in downtown Minneapolis literally for about a decade or longer. But now we got a problem because we live in the current times and the last 12 to eight, you know, the last 12 to oh, it's almost 18 months have been a, a really unprecedented time. And I can tell you from my agents and from the, the market statistics that we follow in the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis has got some structural problems for supply and demand. And uh, I, I worry about people who bought in the in the city of minneapolis particularly mm -hmm. i've probably somewhat broadened that to st paul but i don't know that st paul's in the same predicament as minneapolis mm -hmm. uh, i i don't want to dance around the issues we've had some real um real significant challenges to uh you know i mean public not only public policy but also to uh police protection and um you know uh you know, defunding police and all these conversations, there, there are real implications when people or particularly our elected officials, which is somewhat unprecedented, are advocating to uh, basically remove, uh, you know, the police from a city the size of Minneapolis or from St. Paul um, in part or in whole. And this really does something to the confidence level of consumers both already there and people thinking about buying. It probably even does something to the insurance companies who are thinking about insuring in these areas. And so I think, you know, we gotta be really careful and hold these politicians in Minneapolis accountable from the mayor down to the city council and all the way up to the governor. When you say things as you do, that might be more of a personal agenda than a popular uh, statement of society, there are real implications economically, politically, socially that, come out of those comments right. and, 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 and they, they the repercussions can be felt for years ahead. And I do think that we're seeing a lack of demand, uh, significantly, which has dropped off the, the demand, uh, in Minneapolis for, for housing in, in downtown Minneapolis, South Minneapolis. Um, I don't think this extends by any means throughout the twin cities, but you know, they're as strong as the housing market is, Everywhere else in the 11 county area, you get a listing, put it on the market at, at market price or even a little above. It's gone like that. 
it, it, I mean, these houses don't even stay on the on the market. But that's not the case in Minneapolis. That There's is not some, the case in Minneapolis. Yeah. There's some subtleties uh, to what you just said that uh, I will pass up pursuing at this time, but maybe we can follow up later. Let's we talk briefly about the housing shortage here and uh, the current type plans of addressing that. And I confess openly, I normally am pretty, I did a little research on the housing crisis and I normally am pretty good at just looking at an issue and coming up with some fundamental solutions to it. But that will, the housing shortage is just a tough one. And to be honest with you, I had to struggle a little bit to come up with some ideas that would, different ideas that would help improve the situation. Uh, how do you assess the housing crisis here and probably it's across the country actually but let's focus on locally here and what do you see as some potential uh solutions uh to address the housing shortage well i think what we have to put as a context uh to the discussion of the housing crisis or shortage is we're really talking about affordable housing and affordable housing is kind of an entire cottage industry. I used to build tax credit apartments, which was section 42 tax credit under the federal uh, federal housing um, program, low income housing tax credit program. And that was basically an incentive through tax credits to developers to build that type of housing and then create affordable rents, you know, which were indexed into HUD uh, guidelines, you know, for, for how many house, how many people are in your household, you know, how many family member household it was. So I'm, I have a lot of familiarity with this. I'm familiar with CRA funds, which are Community Reinvestment Act monies. I don't know if you know this, Lacey, but uh, a lot of banks are chartered and obligated under their federal or state charters to commit up to, I've, the numbers I'd always heard was about 15% of their lending uh, to meet CRA requirements for Community Reinvestment Act monies. So they could oftentimes finance a project in an area, an urban area, and not only make a good loan, in their eyes and make a good good uh, uh, loan deal with a developer, but they could also achieve some of their CRA commitments to those funds every year. So we've had a lot of different things out there that are incentives. The, the truth is, and I saw a number and I can't quote you on this, but I wanna give you a rough number. In the seven county area, the Twin Cities, we have an undersupply of affordable housing. And this might've been even as much as a couple of years ago, I'd seen the number, it was over 50,000 units. Wow. of undersupply of affordable housing uh and it's gotten worse it's uh, that gap has gotten worse uh so whatever you'll know, be interesting to see what those numbers are being projected by the city or the state uh maybe more by the state <clears throat> but that's a real problem that's a problem for jobs that's a problem for these employers who aren't paying everybody top wages uh that's a problem for the people that work at mcdonald's or work in restaurant, the restaurant industry as hard as it's been pounded through COVID or, uh, you know, that are employing people paying 10 to 15, $20 an hour. I mean, you know, everybody's arguing we need to have a, a forced mandate um, minimum for minimum wage. Well, you know, I would argue it's hard to live and take care of a family, even if you're making $20 an hour and pay the costs of rent or oh, yeah. homeownership today in the Twin Cities. So we got to, we have a real problem but I haven't seen the leadership in this city or this state step up to meet the challenge with real ideas and solutions and, and uh, something that's going to really address this gap if it's that significant. And I, I know the mayor of Minneapolis who's talked about in the city council of the, the Minneapolis 2040 project. Well, the, the problem with that is that's just taking land use and saying we've got a whole bunch of vacant lots, even in nice neighborhoods. We're going to incentivize a developer to go in and build a four unit project, you know, and, and put affordable housing into there. Well, you, you know, that's not probably the lot. It not only is it not going to have an impact like you want to have if you've got a 50 to 75,000 unit shortage, let's presume, of affordable housing in the 11 county area, but you're also going to socially disrupt some of these communities. You know, because if I own an $800,000 house, you ain't building a four unit affordable housing project in my backyard or we're going to have some problems. Right. And right, that has right. nothing to do with race. That right, has to right. do with you're you're not you know, the whole reason we have zoning 
is because we're trying to create uniformity to how things are zoned. When you do something stupid like that, you're basically saying zoning doesn't matter anymore. Right, let's just, right. Whenever wherever we got vacant land, let's just pick well, who we think should be where and what type of use it should be. And there's no thought to that, right? Right, right. So, so I know something that's uh, near and dear to your heart is multiculturalism. And we're, we're going to get into that sh just quickly. But a comment, I was at a community meeting and they was talking about affordable housing and each unit cost a half a million dollars and the total project was a hundred million dollars and i'm sitting there thinking this is just one project in one city and they're calling it affordable housing and i'm like and i everybody else seemed to you know, I'm, I'm, I've never heard of anything like this, but everybody else in the room seemed to just accept that this is what it was and nothing was wrong with it. But I must admit to you, and as a taxpayer, I was having some serious problems with a $100 million uh, uh, development effort for affordable housing at $500,000 per unit. But we're, I always uh, want to have my guests back on, and we might delve into that the next time around. Let's pivot right now to your work with the, I think, Multicultural Agent Council. And I do know, and and, and really, I, I indicated we had met out at events before, and I just know at every event that I saw you at, you talked about the Multicultural Chamber of Commerce. So let's, why don't you tell me about what's going on with the Multicultural Agents uh, Council and uh, the Multicultural Chamber of Commerce and where you're at there and where you want to go with this, Andy. Well, yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Lacey, to talk about these two passions that are near and dear to my heart. And, you know, again, I started off early in your in your uh, conversation saying that some of the inspiration for starting this and modeling, you know, from scratch, I'm an entrepreneur by nature um, and experience. I, I wanted to create something within our market center that one could attract unique and talented agents from various multicultural communities here in the Twin Cities. We, you know, we have a very diverse population and I don't think a lot of look here, keep in mind, I'm, I've been here 13 years. I'm not even from Minnesota and I probably know more things about the makeup of this community than a lot of Minnesotans, native Minnesotans know. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I just say that, you know, Hey, you got to really dive into this. And, you know, you've done some of this yourself, Lacey, you know, running for offices. We, there, there's some really compelling, uh things that are that are unique to our community that i think are great assets and i, I think one of them and, and one of the first and foremost things is um the multicultural communities that we have we have over a hundred multicultural communities uh from around the world different countries that are represented here in the twin cities i didn't have that in indianapolis i can assure you um for the size of Minneapolis, St. Paul, we're not a Houston, a Chicago, an LA, or Miami, which are tier one cities, as they're referred to. We're more of a tier two city. Um, but we have the diversity of these tier one cities, New York City, <laughs> Chicago, LA, Miami. We have the, the diversity of those types of cities. We just don't have the numbers. And so when I looked at this in Minnesota and I came here, not only did when I ran for office for Ramsey County Commissioner in 2010, I, I literally took this, uh, this fact and, and what I came out of studying, and I said, well, if I'm going to get elected, I've got to connect with these communities, right? Regardless of my mm -hmm. politics or what, mm -hmm. you know, whether I'm partisan or, or not, you know, for, for which Ramsey County is a nonpartisan race, um, but I've got to connect with these communities. So that was really my first experience with multicultural here was I've got to go out to the voters, figure out who's multicultural in my voting district and get to know these people. Right. Mm -hmm. And that just fast forwarding and not going into that chapter, I had a lot of success from that. I actually did very well in the election for, I didn't win, but I did double what anybody else in those same districts did that year, including Tom Emmer when he ran for governor. So um, there must be some evidence of this or proof of this, that multicultural does matter. And we got to pay attention to these communities. So you fast forward into my current role, I kept thinking, how do we capture the opportunity of homeownership within all these diverse communities? And the first thing I had to do was study the communities at large, some of the biggest ones like the Hmong, the Somali, uh, 
you know, there, there's a number of these communities, the, the Russian community, the Polish community. I mean, there's there's different communities that make this up. I had to look at these communities and say, what what percentage of these people are homeowners? Is there any data available to talk about this? How many of them are renting versus owning? And I, I share a little thing with you. There's a guy that you ought to have on your program sometime by the name of Dr. Bruce Corey, who's who's not very well known broadly, but Bruce Bruce is actually well known in certain circles. He's at the, he's at um, Concordia University in St. Paul, and he. He left that role probably had tenure originally, and, and uh, Melvin Carter, the mayor of uh, St. Paul, hired him to head up his Department of Economic Development in his, when he first got elected mm-hmm. mayor. So Bruce went over there and, uh, and headed that up, and we had him in to come talk to our MAC, and I just think the world of this guy. But he did something that really fascinated me, and I bet hardly anybody knows about this. He got funding by the Wilder Foundation and, and a couple other sources back in 2013 to study the impact of multicultural communities on home ownership and rental home ownership, uh, rental own, uh, rental uh, housing here in the Metro Twin Cities. And, and it was a little known study, never made it on the mainstream, I don't think. I mean, but, but uh, Dr. Bruce Corey did this study and got the money for it. And I read through it and, you know, there is a lot of U.S. Census data in there, but he also went a little deeper dive. And I thought it was fascinating that the aggregate of all these communities as estimated under a scientific approach to looking at this, it was estimated that um, the aggregate value of home ownership here in the Metro Twin Cities cultural communities, and, it, and mind you in 2013, when the study was done uh, eight years ago was about $20 billion. So if you took the aggregate value of all the homes owned about $20 billion, mm-hmm. Interesting though, only 40% of the communities back then, the aggregate multicultural communities were homeowners. Only 40%, four out of 10. So I I looked at that and I said, well, wow. So that means that if if we had everybody owning a home, which would never happen, that will never happen that way, but let's say it did, this would be a $50 billion impact on our economy. Would you think that might show up in all the politicians and the corporations and the the, the people that live in the Metro Twin Cities, that we better be paying attention to home ownership and housing in the Metro Twin Cities just as it relates to multicultural. And nobody mm-hmm. was. None of the real estate companies, Cobalt Banker, Adina, Remax, you know, on and on down the road, uh, Keller Williams, none of them were paying attention to this. I'd never seen in the time I came into this role in March of 2017, I never heard anybody say anything at that time about multicultural. I never saw any studies. I never saw any initiatives. Nothing was being done. So I said, well, I traveled around the world. I know what it was like to be an American doing business overseas and how that felt and how different that was. How can I create something to encourage people to get into real estate as a career and also to encourage home ownership through either those same individuals existing or drawing them into the business? How can we create more home ownership opportunities for individuals from these communities? Because that's only good for the, uh, the massive economy of the Metro Twin Cities, seven or 11 county area. And then the other thing that was in that study was he estimated, I think, at the time that the impact of rental housing payments back then was about 360 some million dollars per year being paid out to landlords of various housing. Right. And I mean, of course, some of this stuff has to have certain assumptions. There's no exact science to knowing the answers to this. But you can extrapolate and project certain numbers based on limited data that you collect and then making reasonable assumptions of that data. And so I thought that was fascinating. We have never had anything that I'm aware of done since that has been done. And so this is something through the Multicultural Agents Council we want to do is partner with a university, provide the funding uh, through various means, including Keller Williams. And we'd like to have this done every two years, because if it's 20 billion, 30 billion or 50 billion today, Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would like to know in politics and public policy as well as uh, and in government, as well as in the private sector, how big a market this actually is, because this is a big, big market. And we're just talking Lacey multicultural. We're not talking about the whole market, right, the whole right. housing market. Right. We're talking about just the multicultural communities. So we did something about this and we've had success. I've recruited over 50 agents from communities of color in the last year and a half, two years from starting this. And we really haven't even gotten it fully where we want to have it, but we have proven that there is a need and a, and a demand 
for this. And every time I've ever explained my vision of the multicultural chambers, the multicultural agents council uh, that we that I've created and envisioned, every time I've sat with an agent that was going to go to Coldwell Banker or Remax or a diner or wherever they were going to go, they picked us because they had no connection with those companies on multicultural and couldn't find any connection. There was nothing happening. And so now I think truth be told, fast forward, I think we have spurred, they paid attention. And I think they're, we're seeing some more limited initiatives and focus into this area, but this is a lot more than just writing a check, you know, just put, you know, I'm going to support this organization and give you $5,000 and tell, tell them that I am, you know, XYZ Realty and I want to support multicultural. No, this is, this is something that's got to be more substantive. Um, and we got to help people find this career path from these multicultural communities and the opportunities that that opens up working with people from those communities, showing them how to get down payments through the state of Minnesota, which is money up to $15,000 for down payments. A lot of people don't even know they can get. Right. You know, and so, connecting them with homeownership. And it sounds like uh, you're doing some great work there. Uh, I want to circle back with you and check on the uh, status of what you're doing and the results of what you're doing. Uh, I'm going to respect your time and our audience time here. And I know you probably have to get off and uh, do some evening chores and things. Is there, is there uh, any one thing that you want to leave our audience with uh, relative to what you're doing in real estate? And then uh, we will be following up with you later on in the year, and especially checking in on the multicultural activities that you're doing. But is there any one thing that you want to leave uh, our audience with? You know, uh, great question, Lacey. I would say there's, yeah, I think this would be a great, great thing to end on. I We're, we're hearing this acronym or this uh, series of three words being talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? We've created this whole new title in big companies. You know, they have a DEI, uh, uh, senior vice president of DEI or DEI director or whatever, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion. And a lot of this has been born out of, and we've seen the impact of this in recent years out of some of the strife that's been happening. And it, you know, it, it looks and feels to me a lot like it's obligatory, like companies have to backfill these types of roles in their company. And, and I couldn't disagree more in that sense. I think it's great that companies want to pay attention to more diversity and equity and inclusion. But here's the way we look at DEI. We don't, we don't think in my market center that this needs to be a requirement or a mandate. I like to think of multicultural as opportunity, Lacey. And, and when, when the National Association of Realtors is telling us out of Chicago, our national trade organization and lobbying group, that six out of 10 home buyers are gonna come from communities of color in the next 10 years, I am a businessman first and foremost, I can think like a businessman. That's telling me that there's opportunity in this, not mandates or requirements needed. Right. And we got to change this conversation. And I was talking to some people recently about this is when you tell somebody you've got to do something or you've got to invest in this or you've got to have a presence in DEI or all this stuff, you've lost them. Nobody. We've got enough regulations. We got enough yeah. things mm -hmm. burdening American business owners, small and large, telling them what they have to do and how much more money they have to spend and be taxed and regulated. No, what you do is you convince people that multicultural is good multicultural is opportunity multicultural is the future because if you're not paying attention to demographics just like i talked about millennials and and baby boomers and then you can go deeper into race races are relevant they're, they're going to be the future of this country it won't be white people i mean i'm i'm as white as white gets and it won't be us we won't be the sole largest segment of america and so if you're a business owner not paying attention to this and you're seeing this all in a negative light, you're missing the opportunity. Is Multicultural is nothing but opportunity if you can see it or learn it or get, get more focused on it. Take the time to look at that because there are tremendous opportunities with multicultural and we're experiencing them right now on a micro level, but I think there's huge opportunities for multicultural in this country. And we're even looking at opportunities to get into with respect to the national platform with the Multicultural Chambers Commerce 
Chamber of Commerce and also with my company, Keller Williams, and how we can do some things in other markets with, with like what we're doing here. And so I, I this, that's my message is let's stop talking about mandates and forcing people into DEI. Uh, you will achieve diversity, equity, and inclusion if you see multicultural as an opportunity and start doing things to capitalize on, on multicultural opportunities. Would you agree well, I, with me on that, Lacey? Oh, yeah. I think. In fact, I was just getting ready to say this is a good uh, point to end on because I do agree with you. Uh, based upon my eighth grade civics and uh, love of freedom and uh, uh, government not interfering in our lives, uh, I agree with you. Based on a business owner, I don't want the government trying to tell me what to do with my business. And uh, it's just good business. And I should have, a, as a smart businessman, I don't need anyone making me do that. And so I really appreciate all the good knowledge that you shared. Uh, I uh, support all the efforts you're doing in the multicultural area, and I look forward to seeing you very shortly again, uh, Andy. Uh, thanks very much. Lacey, uh, thank you. It's been a privilege. I appreciate yeah. it. An honor. Have a great evening. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.